Well, good morning, Springbrook. Happy Daylight Savings. You guys made it. I'm so impressed. I'm so proud of you. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Bethany, and I'm the worship director here at Springbrook. And I just want to welcome you. If this is your first time with us or maybe your first time back in a long time, welcome, welcome, welcome. It is such a delight to be with you. If you're worshiping with us online from wherever the Lord has you today, a special welcome to you as well. We have online hosts who are standing by all throughout the service who would love to answer any questions you have, would love to pray with you. So use that request prayer button over on the right-hand side anytime throughout the service. That'll take you into a private one-on-one chat with one of our prayer hosts. You can also engage in the comments throughout the service. We want you to feel connected even while you are far away. We want you to feel connected to this community. Well, our call to worship for this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'd love to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To this king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's worship our king who is worthy of our praises this morning.
chapter 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Let's continue this morning singing praises to Jesus, who is our king. And the rain. 
together in prayer before the Lord this morning. All Heavenly Father, all hail King Jesus. I think you tend to weave themes throughout different seasons of our lives. You bring out different aspects of your character. You teach us more about you in a specific way. And for me in this season, you're reminding me that you are the King you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you are in charge, and that we find safety and security and identity in that, that we can serve you, that we can obey you, that we can love you as our king. I pray for each person in this room, those who are worshiping here in this space, and those who are worshiping far away from us, worshiping from home or wherever you have them. Father, we each come in carrying a different burden. There are different things on our hearts happening in our lives, our stories, and our families. And some of those things are just too much for us to bear. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, even in this moment, that your presence would bring comfort to those who are seeking it, to those who are doubting and questioning and wondering who you are or where you are, that you would be moving you would be stirring them to pay attention for you, to look for you, to listen. Father, come near to the brokenhearted this morning. Come near to those who are overwhelmed with anxiety or depression. Come near to those who are alone. We love you. Everything we do here, everything we do at all is for you and for your glory. So be honored and lifted up this morning. May your name be made great. May we never waste a single breath trying to make our own names great, but may we give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor forever and ever. Holy Spirit, we ask you to open our eyes today, open our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive what you have for us in your good and perfect word. We pray this all in Christ's matchless name. Amen. And you may be seated. Amen. We are so glad that you are with us today. One year ago today exactly, I was sitting at my desk with a cell phone trying to figure out how to do a church service. (laughs) I tell you, a lot's changed in the last year, hasn't it? The church looks completely different this past year than it has historically. I think a lot of it has been for the good. But you know one thing that has not changed? God's Word. It is unchanging. It stands forever. And I just find so much comfort and peace in that. You know what else hasn't changed? The power of God working in our lives. You know, the Holy Spirit has been alive and at work this past year. Even though churches look differently, God has still been the same, unchanging. His Word is unchanging. His promises are unchanging. He is going to return. And we look forward to that day. And His Holy Spirit is at work in and through us today. While this last year has been challenging, it's been so exciting for us to be able to see where God has, in fact, been at work in the lives of people in our congregation, in our community. Today, we get to celebrate a baptism service. That's something that hasn't changed. People around the world are getting baptized as they identify themselves with Christ. Today, we get to celebrate that. Today, we get to celebrate the baptism of Isaiah Valentin. 
And it's so exciting for us to be able to celebrate, and we're glad you're with us today. I want to invite uh, Isaiah to come out. It's been so exciting for me personally just to get to, uh, just to, get to know you and see uh, the work that God has been doing uh, in your life and in your family. And uh, it was almost four years ago that I got to meet you and your family. And so four years ago in December. And I can remember talking with your family, and I got an opportunity to talk with you. And uh, Isaiah, it's been exciting for me to be able to see how you've been connected. Uh, you got connected to a youth ministry. You've been reading the Bible. And it's been encouraging for me to see how God has been working in and through your life. And so I am so excited for you. I'm so excited to be able to celebrate this day with you. And I'm looking forward to all that God's going to do in and through you as you continue to follow him, as you make him the Lord of your life. It's also been exciting for me just to be able to hear how God has been working in your life. I know we had an opportunity to talk for a little bit about um, how God has been at work. And so if you could just maybe in a few words, tell us a little bit about, you know, what your life was like, you know, before you came to understand your need for a relationship with Christ. How old are you now? The 14. You're 14. But God was doing some work in you. But tell us a little bit about what your life was like before you came to understand your need for a relationship with Christ. I was going to church off and on. I was a mess. And... I had a trouble at home and at school. Yeah. You know what? It's interesting. When you're young, sometimes you just do what your parents tell you to do, and you find yourself in church, and you're not quite sure why. And uh, I know that that was kind of your experience. I know you've been through a lot. You and your family have both been through a lot. And, uh, but I also know that God has been at work through that time. And so tell us a little bit about how you came to understand your need for a relationship with Christ. What did that look like? Two years ago, I was having trouble, and I decided to pray to God, and I prayed more often to Him. Mm-hmm. I went to church. And I was happier. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of that dynamic is you're in you're in small group with some other kids. You're hearing things through, uh, through children's ministry or through youth ministry. And you get to hear about your need for a relationship with Christ. And so it was exciting for me to be able to talk about how one night you're just laying there and you felt God, you know, mm-hmm. his presence. And you just wanted to ask him into your life. And so that was really exciting uh, to be able to hear you share that. Tell me a little bit about what your life has been like since. Um, I felt the need to go to church more. I pray more. And I talk to my friends and family about God. Yeah, amen. <laughs> That's a good one. Hey, don't stop that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? You know what's funny? When you're younger, you get dragged to church. When you have a relationship with Christ and you get to experience His presence, you want to go to church. And so there's a difference between having to go to church and wanting to go to church. And I know that your desire to want to be a part of what God's doing, your desire to want to identify with Him through baptism, uh, is certainly an encouragement to me. I know it's an encouragement to your family and to our congregation. And so we are so excited to be able to celebrate this uh, day with you. How about we hop in there and get you baptized? Is it warm enough? Okay, good. Not too hot? Ooh, that's kind of nice. <laughs> All right, Isaiah, uh, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? Yes. Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? Yes. That he was resurrected and he's going to return? Yes. Outstanding. Isaiah, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hey, congratulations, both. You know what, from a ministry perspective, I can tell you there's nothing more exciting than talking to people about who Jesus is and what it means to have a relationship with them. And I just want to encourage you that if you have questions about who Jesus is, if you want to know more about how to have a relationship with him, we would love the opportunity to talk with you. If you have questions about baptism, you go to our website, springbrook.org 
slash baptism. Uh, there's a place for you to register. Even if you have questions, maybe you're not interested in baptism, you just have questions about what it's like, uh, we would love the opportunity um, to talk with you. And if you're watching with us online this morning, uh, we are so glad that you are with us. Uh, up in the upper right-hand corner of your uh, screen there, there should be uh, some bars. We encourage you to take a moment to fill out that online connection card just to let us know that you're watching with us online. Um, you can share with us as much information as you feel comfortable sharing. There's a place for you to, uh, uh, to share prayer requests. If you're watching live with us now at our 9 o'clock service, our online hosts are available to pray with you. But we'd love the opportunity um, to hear from you. And if you're in person with us this morning, we are so glad that you're with us. It's good to see you as well. You've got a connection card that's uh, in your chair there. So we want to encourage you to take a few moments um, to fill that out. Uh, there's a place for you to drop that uh, towards the back of the service. Uh, you can drop that off at the end uh, as long as our tithes and offerings. just want to thank you so much for supporting the work that God is doing in and through uh, this ministry. And we're so glad that you are with us um, this morning. I also want to let you know if you have not yet downloaded our app, uh, we want to encourage you to do that. Uh, just simply text uh, Springbrook app. Uh, to 77977. You get a link there, whatever device you're using. Uh, we want to encourage you to download our app. Everything that you need to know about Springbrook and Stay Connected uh, is available there. And so we want to encourage you to uh, engage with that or on our website. Uh, but we're so glad that uh, you are able to do that. This time I also want to just take a moment to invite Michelle Howe out. And so Michelle, if you could come out. Michelle is uh, the director of our uh, children's ministry. And uh, it has been uh, it's so exciting to see how God has been working through our children's ministry this, uh, this past several weeks. And so I know you and Free have been working really hard getting children's ministry ready to go. It was so exciting last week to watch kids coming up just excited uh, to be uh, back. And so it was really exciting to be able to connect with parents. And so tell us a little bit about your first week last week. What was that? How'd that go? Sure. I am just in awe of what God is doing. We stood out there last Sunday and remembered that a year passed was the last time we had kids back in the classrooms. We didn't plan that date. We just realized it that day. <laughs> and it was amazing because we had every class filled to the number of children that we were able to have back there. And we were just praising God to be able to staff the ministry, to be able to have all those kids back here. And he guided our steps every single day during quarantine. He guided our steps. And we are just amazed at what he is doing. Yeah, amen. You know what? There's something about being together that you just can't replace. You know, that was what our Presence of God series was about previously, was the importance of how, what it means to be together. And there's something you just can't replace being together. But at the same time, you know, this last year we haven't been together, and I've just really appreciated the way that you and Pre and that entire ministry have worked at keeping kids and families engaged and connected at Springbrook. And so while it's an opportunity for us to come back together, it's also been an unprecedented opportunity for us to work with parents to help their kids stay connected. You know, this ministry exists to come alongside and support our parents as they raise their children up uh, to fear and to love the Lord. And so uh, part of our ministry is we're excited about when people are together. We're excited to see people here. But at the same time, if you're watching online, if you're not able to be with us, um, we want to encourage you as parents to invest in the lives of your kids. And Michelle and Pri and the entire team are available as resources uh, for you to be able to do that. In fact, as we move towards Easter, um, we just want to encourage you, the goal is not to get people back into church. Um, the goal is for us to be witnesses in our community. And so maybe if you're not able to come back with us in person yet, I want to encourage you to find five friends, five neighbors, maybe five people or coworkers that you can share with 
uh, what Easter means to you. So let God use you um, where you're planted. Amen? So we love coming together, but we also know that God is at work in our community. In fact, that's what go make disciples means, right? We're making disciples in our community. And so you've done a great job with our children's ministry uh, doing that for our parents. If you have any questions about how we can support your kids, please let Michelle know. I know right now um, we have got our classrooms are full. You've got a full schedule and God provided. But as we move towards Easter, I know we've got some empty classrooms available that we have an opportunity to, uh, to move into those empty classrooms. But right now, I know that we are praying for 10 people uh, that would be willing to jump in and serve uh, in children's ministry. And you can serve once a month. You can serve uh, twice a month, you know, whatever schedule is. Tell us a little bit about some of the opportunities people have for sure. children's ministry. We have opportunities with our really little ones, um, and that would be on a caregiving level. We have opportunities to teach and to be helpers in some of the older age classrooms, and we have administration uh, volunteering opportunities as well. Yeah, outstanding. So if you would, uh, if you're not connected anywhere, if you're thinking, uh, if you would love uh, the opportunity to invest in this next generation of the church, the next generation of kids, uh, we would love the opportunity to connect with you. Please uh, contact Michelle. We need at least 10 people before Easter. And so if you want some more information, go to springbrook.org slash serve. You can sign up for there. I know Michelle would love to be able to talk with you uh, personally. I just want to take another moment to thank you and pray for all the work you guys are doing. That children's ministry is doing a fantastic job. Thank you. Good job. Well, at this time, Pastor Matt's going to come out. We're going to continue our series in Leviticus. We're looking at the law and the cross, and I am looking forward to the message today. How about you? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I lost an hour of sermon prep last night, sometime between 1 and 3. So, I don't know. Daylight savings. Yay. Well, everybody, um, today we are in the book of Leviticus. We're in our series, The Law and the Cross. And our sermon title today is A Crizzling End. And we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. I didn't make up a word. I was really excited I didn't have to make up a word. But before we jump in, I've got a picture I want to show all of you from a few weeks ago. Now, I have learned a lot in the last year, but Lucy has not. You see, right now, I, I mean, she has, but um, I didn't tell her I was going to do this. But um, we're, we're in the church building in this picture, and she's been running around touching everything. And look where her hand is. She's learned nothing. Here I am being a model of what it should be, but I, I joke here because um, we're, we're about to go into the reality. A year ago today, a year ago today is when I began to realize how disgusting I am. A year ago today. Now, the first thing um, in a staff Zoom meeting um, once we switched over to Zoom, um, somebody said, you have to wash your hands for 20 seconds. And I was like, no, you don't. The, the, the automatic washer things don't even go 20 seconds. Like, that's wasting water. And then I found out that that was like a guideline. And I was like, oh. Then I was relieved when they said, you just have to wear masks so I could quit washing my hands. Um, I kid, I kid. But, um, and then there was a point. I, I still remember a distinct moment. Because when, when COVID started, we, we started to hear about how, how germs were going to affect us and how we could spread and all these different things. And the thing that affected me the most was the idea that like, when I'm at the store, I need to keep my distance. I need to keep washing my hands. I need to, when we get home, we're going to spray down our vegetables or whatever. And, and so there were all these things. Um, and then there was no hand sanitizer. And in the midst of no hand sanitizer, I remember there was a day where I tried three different stores because we were out at home, we were out in the car, and, and so I kept, I'll just get one piece of grocery from this store and see if they have hand sanitizer, and I, I went down the list, and, um, 
I, I, kept, I got to the end of my grocery run, and I knew my hands are filthy. Because when COVID started, you became aware of all the things you touched, right? And then you became aware of the times that you scratch your face before you wash your hands. You, you become aware of all that out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Um, and, and I used to think of myself as kind of a germaphobe, and then COVID happened. But anyways, this one day, I, you know, I, I did everything at Butera, and then I went um, over to Meyer, and then I drove to Costco to get diapers, and at each place I was looking for hand sanitizer, and um, we were good on toilet paper, but hand sanitizer, and could not find it. And as I left Costco, I remember I get in the car, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm in the car that if we had to drive Lucy somewhere, this is the car she'd be in, and so I'm going to keep my hands perfectly at 10 and 2 the entire drive, and when I get home, when I get home, I'm going to go in and I'm going to start to get... And as I was thinking about my plan, I was chewing my nails. Um, and I kept chewing my nails. And then I realized, I think I just licked everything in the last three stores I went into. Oh my gosh, my family's going to die because I haven't stopped chewing my nails since I was like three. Um, and so then I did, was determined to stop. And, and this is a distinct memory. I got to the next red light... And as I was sitting there, I turned the radio on. I went, oh, I touched the radio. And I went, shoot. Well, I'm gonna... And I just started chewing my nails again because I'd only partially chewed the one nail, so it was kind of hanging. And, I had to t- and what happened out of this was just a realization of how disgusting I could be in the midst of trying not to be disgusting. And when we read the book of Leviticus, that's kind of what we're doing. Because you see, when the law entered the picture humanity began to realize, we'll never measure up to that. When there is only one command in a garden, (laughs) well, we got to try that now. When more commands were added progressively again and again and again, when it was, hey, please don't kill your brother, the outcome was brother killing. When it was follow, call out to the Lord, the outcome was calling out to other things and eventually a destruction, the flood, and then on the other side of it, it eventually became, instead of trying to be right before God, how can we become gods ourselves? The Tower of Babel. And we go through Genesis, and we get to Exodus, and and we start to see in the second half of Exodus all of these pictures of laws and, and the implications of what they mean, because if these laws are what it takes for humans to be right before God, I don't think I can go a day keeping all of the laws. And it's more than that. It's more than that when we start to look at the law because one of the things about the law is it's, it, it's an intentional thing when we sin sometimes and it's an unintentional sin that we sometimes do, but both of them are sin. Sin at its core is redefining good and evil on our own terms. That's in the garden. They looked, saw, and desired Eve and then Adam ate from the apple thinking, I want to be like God. I don't want to be made in the image of God and rule creation on God's behalf. I want to be more than what I was created to be. And all of us in our sin, intentional or unintentional, do the same thing. We we try and make ourselves more, try and make our definition of good and evil good enough. And the reality of what we're looking at today in Leviticus is that our redefining good and evil, whether we mean to or not, keeps us 
absent from the presence of God. Not because of anything wrong with God. We talked about this last week. God is holy. He is like the sun. Our imperfection means we cannot go near him because in his perfection, he would destroy imperfection in his presence. And so today should be a sermon of great joy. Leviticus 16 is the moment where humans get to be, or a human gets to be almost completely fully in the presence of God on this earth. It's a super unique moment. Last week we looked a little bit at this. This week we look at the whole picture in Leviticus 16. But in order for us to talk about this, we have to recognize that this day is not a day of great joy in the history of Israel. If I had hours, I would spend time right now talking about this nerdy thing. I actually did this. I'm going to just reference it, so if you want to know more. Um, I did a sermon a few years ago here on Good Friday. It's called The Song They Could Not Sing. And it's about the fact that at Leviticus 16 is the center of all of Moses' writing. And if you look at the patterns of Moses' writing, you would expect... You know when you watch a, a, a TV show? You know when you watch a streaming service that you don't pay premium for? You know when the commercials are coming, right? Like, there's that moment, like, if you're, if you're watching alone, there's the moment where the person, the trial pops up, and you're like, oh, no, they've got to figure that out. How are they going to solve it? And then all of a sudden, hey, make sure you're using this product. Like, it just, the, the commercial comes, and you knew it was going to come, but you can't skip it unless you paid a dollar more a month. The, the, the point is, is it, there's an intuitive way we know something should be here. And scholars look at Leviticus 16, and they look at the flow of Moses' writing to it and the flow of Moses' writing from it, and what they've concluded is that there should be a song here. This should be the most triumphant moment in the history of Israel. A day every year where Israel is made right before God, where they can celebrate that God's presence will be with them for another year. Instead, we get what we're about to look at. A somber day, a day of reflection, a day where no one could rejoice. And so we're going to look at that. And we're going to look, I'm going to start as a pessimist with like the glasses a quarter of the way full. And then in the middle at some point, I'll hopefully shift to like, there's water in the glass. And then by the end, we'll be very optimistic as we look at what was implied in the Old Testament and what is true in the New. But before we get, begin, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that as we look at the book of Leviticus, we are looking at a picture of what it would take for us on our own terms to try and be with you. And we thank you that the end result of Leviticus is it makes us aware of our filth and our, our sickness and our sin but it also makes us aware that, that from the beginning you had plans to bring us back to you. We thank you as we look at this passage, as we, we struggle with the implications of it. We thank you that at the end of the day, in your son, there is a perfect sacrifice and solution. We thank you that at the end of today, we, we can know for sure, with full assurance, that we can be in your presence now and for eternity. And so we pray you would open our eyes and ears to your message today. We pray these would be your words and not mine. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, if you want to open up to Leviticus 16, um, at the start of Leviticus 16, we see the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now we all immediately have to pause, but if you listen to the message or were here last week, the message last week was about the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who after God appeared in his glory in the tabernacle, they took it upon themselves to 
bring incense before him to cover over the people and cover over it. They started to do something the Lord had not commanded as an intercession on behalf of the people. And because of that, the Lord struck them dead with fire. And the end result of that story picks up in Leviticus 16. And I, I want to say this before we go much further. In today, I'm giving you a whole bunch of stuff today that some of you may be like, well, I couldn't figure that out on my own. And some of that may be true. I'm, I'm blessed with lots of commentaries and scholars and mentors and people I can talk to you to give information. But the key thing for reading Leviticus is Leviticus 1 through like 16 is either one really big idea or two big ideas with a bunch of subsections. But if you just read one subsection at a time, you're, you're never going to be able to see the big picture. Leviticus, it's like if you were to read just like a sentence of the Constitution a day, and at the end of each day write out, here's what the Constitution means. At, at some points, you'd be really confused, right? And then hopefully by the end, it would be more clear. But the, the point is, is that Leviticus was written as a set of laws that you can't really chunk them very well into small bits. You have to read in big, large pieces. And so when we come to Leviticus 16... Leviticus 16 is a part of something that started in Leviticus 10 that we looked at last week, where two priests were killed as they approached the Lord because of their sin, because they did what he had not commanded. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So a lot of stuff here. First thing we need to know, mercy seat. Um, mercy seat is a weird translation. I'm not going to spend much time on this, except that the word behind it is this Hebrew word kippereth. And, and the word kippereth, um, we're going to look at a word kipper later, which is atone or atonement. Um, it, it probably should be called the atonement cover, but at some point in church tradition, we started calling it the mercy seat. Um, but I'm going to call it the atonement cover because the day is about atonement. Mercy might be a part of it, but the day is a picture of atonement. And so... There's this place in the center of the temple. So, that, so this is a picture of the Israelite camp early in Numbers, so right after Leviticus. Um, so there would have been the tabernacle in the center. Then around it would have been, um, there would have been like Moses and Aaron in their houses. And then there would have been some priests and some other groups. And then the 12 tribes would have been on the outside. And they would have formed this massive camp that was centered around the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, there would have been this space this is where the atonement cover was. This is where the Ark of the Covenant and the lid, which the atonement cover is the lid, it would have been right there in the center. And when God appeared to the people, and, and when the glory of the Lord came down last week, and what we saw, it came in here. And at this point, no one was able to enter here. Now, it's important to remember um, this, this was like a tent, and then this was a giant courtyard. The people could bring sacrifices. They'd come in here. This was an altar. Then this was a, a burning thing. Um, and they'd come in here, and the priests would help them as they offered sacrifices, and they'd go to these tables or these different things. But um, the people would come in over here, and they'd walk around, and the people would never go in the tent, this wasn't like if you ever go to, like, if you ever travel to, like, Italy or Europe and you want to go into fancy old churches, there was no, like, oh, it's, like, Saturday, so we're going to let people into the main portion of the tent. Um, the tent was just for the priests, and this space was just for one priest one time a year. So we just heard that 
Aaron should never come in, and now we hear, but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around. The whole point is he's got these special garments, holy garments, made out of linen that he's just going to wear once a year on the Day of Atonement the day when he's going to enter into the most holy place before the atonement cover, before the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement for the people. And, and so he's wearing the special stuff, but he doesn't just wear the special holy garments. First, he bathes in water because he's going to wash away any physical impurities he can and, and be very thorough in that. And then he's going to put on these special garments. Now, I, I have to pause here for a moment I learned something this last week, and I've taught on it, and I need to repent from it. Um, I have heard for most of my life, and I have taught to our students for most of my life, um, that when the priest prepared to go into the most holy place, a rope was either tied around the priest's waist or around a leg, because if the priest walked into the most holy place and the Lord was not pleased with the sacrifice, the Lord would strike the priest dead. And, and based on earlier in Leviticus purity laws, you can't touch a dead body in the presence of the Lord. So if people tried to go drag the high priest's body out, when they touch it, they'd die too. And eventually just a pile of corpse is. But um, the, the point is, I, I heard all this stuff about the rope. And so for today, I was going to illustrate for you this picture of how thick the rope was. Because some of the priests might have been heavy dudes. We know of at least one who was a very heavy dude in 1 Samuel. But, but what I discovered... And what took me two seconds to find out was that the priests did not wear a rope around them at all on the Day of Atonement. It's not true at all. If you've ever heard it taught, if you've ever read it in a book, it's not true at all. I've taught it. I'm repenting of it right now. I think this is both hilarious and really frustrating. I'm mad at myself, but I'm also, now that I've learned, that was an unintentional sin. That now that I'm aware of it, I'm repenting from it. I'm repenting. I, I spoke it. I taught it. So I'm speaking and teaching the other. Um, but, but why this matters is twofold. Um, there's also talks about the priests would have bells on, but the priests never wore the bells. They only wore the holy linen, undergarment, or holy linen garments. Um, the priests, when they went in for the Day of Atonement, I always in my mind had this picture, and maybe some of you are in the same boat because you've heard it taught this way. I always in my mind had a picture that no one was sure, no one was sure if the Lord would accept the sacrifices of the people. And so if the priest went in there and the Lord was displeased, the Lord would strike down that priest. That's always been in my head related to the Day of Atonement. I cannot trace back when I started hearing this, but I know I've heard this most of my life. Thursday was the first time I ever thought, where did that come from? It comes from the 1300s A.D., so not very reliable. If it was B.C., maybe, but A.D., no. Um, but the point of this, we need to recognize something that, that I need to just knock this down for myself and for others that maybe think the same thing. When the priest put on these holy garments, when he bathed, put on the garments, and the next thing we see is he's going to take a bowl and sacrifice it for his sin and for the sin of his house, he was atoned for the Lord was prepared for him to, or he was prepared to enter the Lord's presence. There was not on that day an idea of flippancy, that an idea that God, the priest was going to come in, God was going to say, nah, this year not good. Nothing like that. There was nothing like that in this story. The expectation was if the people obeyed the law, they would be safe. 
Because that's what God presented in Leviticus. He didn't present an idea that you can do everything right and I still may zap you. That's not there. I have always had this wrong, and it's so exciting to talk about it the right way. I hope for some of you, you're like, oh, and if you're someone who says, well, I've always heard it the other way, I've heard it taught that way, I have commentaries that mention the ropes, and if you trace back where all of them go, it's 1300 AD from a dude who was a heretic. He just wondered, I bet people who went in the presence of God would die, so they probably had to tie a rope or something. That's the origin of that idea. So we're going to move past that now, but I want to make sure it's clear. We saw last week Nadab and Abihu decided to do more than what, the, what God commanded, and they were struck down for it. But Aaron and the high priests after him who would do this role, if they were obedient to the Lord, there was no fear besides reverent awe of the Lord, reverent fear of the Lord. So after he puts on the holy garments, he bathes, puts on the holy garments, he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Now we need to pause here and talk about the word atonement. The word atonement, first thing, um, I'm going to have so much fun with it. I hope you guys have fun with this. The word atonement is not in the New Testament. Crazy. I don't know what to do with this right now because we have to stay here, but by the end of this service, that'll pay off. The word atonement is not actually in the New Testament. There's different words in the New Testament. The word atonement in the Old Testament quite literally means to cover over, or another way would be to smear Now, why do I say to smear? The first place the word used, kipper, is when when Noah is building the ark, God tells him, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. The idea of atonement is tied to the idea of covering thoroughly so something is watertight. Covering completely. When the Israelites make the golden calf, and Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and he comes down, he gets ticked off, and he breaks the Ten Commandments, and and he talks to the people, and it's really bad, and then there's a lot of yelling, and there's a lot of bad stuff. At at the end of that, Moses said, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. This is, in my best estimation, the first place this word is used in a, in a verbal way like this, where, where Moses is saying, I'm going to go up there and see if I can cover up for your sin. Now, not cover up, like I'm going to go up there and say, God, they weren't worshiping a calf. That's, you did not see that. You were up here. You couldn't see that far down. They were just saying, it was nothing like that. The idea was, Moses was going to go up and say, say God, your wrath towards them is deserved. Your holiness means that you cannot maintain a people who worship other things besides you, or worse, try and turn you into other things, depending on how you read that story. Because some people read that story as the Israelites trying to make the golden calf into an image that kind of was their version of the Lord, so that they could worship that, so they could tame God and put him into something more not perfect in every way, something that, that was more man-centered. But the point of the end of this is that, that when Moses goes up, he says, perhaps I can cover over for you. You deserve death here, but perhaps we can stop it. And so when the idea of covering here, when we get to Aaron, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his, fam- for his house. 
We need to think about atonement as the covering over of sin, and and it's an idea of a completeness of covering. It's the idea of smearing something over, and that something is blood. And and this can be very challenging in our modern world, because, because we don't live with blood the way they live with blood in the Old Testament. If you think, well, I like my steaks bloody, you don't. Google it. There's no blood in a steak by the time it gets to you unless you can get it right from the farm. They drain all the blood out, and that, it's this liquid in the proteins that we get that starts off red when it hits oxygen, and then it becomes clear as it gets heated up. The, the point is, we have no frame of reference for blood the way they have in the Old Testament. You don't, if you're hungry in the morning and want to have bacon, have to go kill a pig, right? You just go to the store. It, we can give blood. We live in such a different society than what they had back then. But, but the idea of blood for us is something more often than not associated with death. In the Old Testament, blood was associated with life. It was the lifeblood of a thing. The, the blood pumped through. It was the life of something. Why is this important? Because when we talk about making atonement, we're talking about covering over sin And we're talking about covering over that sin with blood, with the life of something innocent, God will refrain from from enacting his wrath on something else. Because God in his perfect holiness cannot allow sin into his presence. So for the high priest to go in, he would need to be covered in some fashion or form of blood that would cover his sin and allow him to be innocent. Now, the priest did not, like, drench himself in blood. Um, There's very specific rituals they did, but the rituals were what God commanded to say, my wrath will be satisfied. You will be able to enter into my holiness if you are covered in this way, because these things that you have done will, will show that you are holy before me. And the picture of atonement in the Old Testament is a picture of covering. It's not quite a picture of taking away. It's a picture of covering. It's a picture of, it's like a band-aid on a band-aid on a band-aid on a band-aid. After Aaron did the sin offering, the bull, for himself and his house, he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. So essentially he's rolling dice or flipping a coin, and out of it one of the goats would be for the Lord and the other for Azazel. So we need to talk about two goats right now. So we need to talk about two goats right now. We've got the goat for the Lord and the goat for Azazel. Now the goat for the Lord hopefully is pretty obvious. We know who the Lord is. But when we see Azazel, we have to pause. If you have a a different translation, it might say scapegoat there. And that's because some scholars say, well, the the literal, the Azazel, part of it is goat, part of it is escape or depart. So it's the scapegoat. It's where that term comes from we're pretty sure. So a literal scapegoat, Hebrew for departing goat or leaving goat. Other people think Azazel is the region of the wilderness the goat went to. Some people think um, it's a demon in the wilderness, a demon named Azazel. Other people think it's an abstract noun meaning entire removal. It's only used in the Bible in this specific context of the Day of Atonement. So we, we just don't really know. Whatever one of these it is, now, now some of you may be thinking, that one's creepy, the demon one, right? Um, but the one thing that's important here is there's an ancient tradition with this where the idea was not they were sacrificing a goat to the demon. The idea was that the goat would have been released, and, and in releasing it, it would have left the camp of Israel, and the place it went would have been a place of demons. Does that make sense? 
I hope so. The idea was not God was like, sacrifice one thing to me and one thing to something the opposite of me. God was saying, sacrifice one thing to me and send this other thing away. I tend to think it's the scapegoat or it's the departing of the goat. Um, So that's where I'm going with that. But so we have these two goats. The goat for the Lord, Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away to the wilderness to Azazel. Now, the goat for the Lord, the goat for the Lord was sacrificed to atone for the sin of the people in the most holy place and around the tabernacle. The, the idea here, if we, if we jump ahead to Leviticus 16.15, the, the goat for the Lord, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull for himself, sprinkling it over the atonement cover and on, in, in front of the atonement cover. So, so this goat was killed for the sins of the people. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the unclean uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. Now, the idea here is simple. The idea here is that the people of Israel, if they wanted to have God dwell in their midst, their sin eventually did something called chrisling. Chrisling is a term for tiny cracks and hairline fractures that form in glass and feel wet or even greasy to the touch. Chrysling is what happens to ancient glass. Um, If glass is made perfectly without any flaws in the formula, glass has like a, a, a decay rate of it'll take like a million years for anything to start happening. Glass made properly does not really decay. But this is a picture of glass that was not made properly. And over time, it starts to fracture on its own because the compound, when it meets air and heat and light, eventually it just cannot stay together. And so, so there's this problem. Chrysling happens as the result of too little stabilizer or too much alkali in the glass's recipe. There's an exciting piece of news about chrysling, though. As of 2012... These guys figured out a solution. There's a new and safe way, and uh, there's a new safe and simple treatment using an acrylic polymer that can restore some of these to some of these artifacts, glass artifacts, to a presentable condition. And with controlled temperature and humidity, the stability can be maintained. The idea of chrysling, as I talk about this, that glass, if it's made properly, has no problems. But as soon as something is introduced into the formula of glass that breaks its formula from what it's supposed to be, it chrizzles. And what that means is over time it decays and there's no solution. The best scientists have been able to come up with is they can put something over it, they can cover over it with this polymer, acrylic polymer, and they can just protect it as it is. They're not fixing it, but they're covering it. And, and I, I love this illustration for sin, especially in the book of Leviticus, because you see what was happening in this story. Uh, the, so, so God is going to dwell with the people in the tent of meeting, 
But the people's sin has this crizzling effect. The, the crizzling effects of sin led to imperfect annual sacrifices. Whenever they did the Day of Atonement, it started a countdown to the next Day of Atonement because sin was not completely removed because the people themselves were sinful. We look at this picture of what their camp would have looked like. And and in the center of their camp, on the first day of the year, this is what it would have looked like. Everything, after the Day of Atonement, everything is perfect. And then someone sins. And then more people sin. And they come in, and they come in, and they come in, and this sin just grows and grows and grows. And and, and eventually, I I will tell you, I want to be careful here, the Lord and his presence No danger to the Lord here. The danger is is that the Lord is not going to dwell with the people anymore. Last year we went through the book of Ezekiel about this time. And what we see there is the Lord says, your sin is so great and you have so abolished the covenant between me that I'm going to leave. But my covenants with you are not going anywhere, but you're going to go into exile first. But the the point is, is that sin eventually covers everything if there's no solution. And so Leviticus, we're seeing a solution, blood. Blood and blood, and blood, and, and, and the idea eventually, and it's not that every bit of the ground is being sprinkled in blood, but the idea is that blood is being ritually used in the ways that the Lord has commanded and when the people follow in obedience in order for the people to be able to be in the presence of God. And, and, and the end result of this was that the Day of Atonement is about the very space they they take care of the tent of meeting, they take care of the altar, they take care of all of the things that they're supposed to use to atone before God because the process of atoning for them on a daily basis of making sure their sin is covered eventually leads to those very places of holiness being covered in sin and they have to be atoned for. Intentional and unintentional, the people of Israel on their own were unable to be in God's presence and that is true for each and every human. After He has made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar. He shall present the live goat. So this is the second goat. And and what happens is Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. The process of laying a hand on an animal's head when you were going to sacrifice it was how you transferred sin to it. But Aaron, in this one instance, lays both hands on the goat. And what does Aaron do? Well, the first thing Aaron does is he confesses over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness, a man who is designated. The goat shall bear in all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So we've got the goat for the Lord that's sacrificed to atone for the sin of the people that's even entering into and desecrating the high places, the holy places in the tabernacle. And then we've got the goat for departure, which is left alive with the sins of Israel, confessed and transferred onto it, sent to the wilderness. And, and so, so the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about this day is that the people, their sin had to be covered by blood, but once a year... All of that sin was transferred onto the head of this goat and it was removed. And it was kind of like a reset. It, it didn't mean that the people were any less sinful, but it meant that the sin had been removed. For on this day you shall, uh, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. Not just cleansing the holy places, but cleansing the people. 
You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Now, I I talked about this at the start. You would expect some type of rejoicing here, and instead you see that they are going to afflict themselves, which means they're going to fast and deprive themselves. They are going to take a somber expression before the Lord because this is a day where every year they're being faced with the reality of the impossibility of a solution to their sin. That's, that's the day of atonement. Instead of triumphant rejoicing came fasting and solemnity. And to further reinforce this, towards the end it says, and the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place, Aaron, and then a son of Aaron, and then a son of Aaron's son, and generation after generation shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. The kingdom of God's people, the Israelites in the Old Testament, began with no lasting solution for sin. It's so sad. And it's so true for all of humanity. On our own, there is no lasting solution for sin. I, this last week, on Monday, I felt a conviction about something that when I thought about it, it's like, that's not sinful. That's not sinful at all. And I, <laughs> over the course of about a few hours, I was writing something and I kept thinking, well, that's not sinful. Is it sinful? Eventually, I called a mentor and I walked him through what was on my heart. And he's like, eh, it's not sinful, but it's good we're talking about it. And then I called Pastor Rich. I had the same conversation with Pastor Rich and then I talked to Jess about it. Because, because there was kind of a pattern that I didn't know what to do with. It's like, I, I don't want this to be hidden. And then it was this morning, I, um, I drink too much coffee, um, and I, I didn't drink coffee this morning. And you're like, well, you're still talking really fast, so it's, it's not the coffee's fault. But this morning, I realized that, that I keep drinking coffee to, to get really, really worked up and to get everything done. And I have so much going on in my life that I'm, I'm consuming coffee and caffeine in order to just keep me going. And last night, as I was wrapping up sermon prep, before I lost an hour, that is completely unaccounted for, before I lost that hour, I had this thought of, I know I'm going to lose an hour. It's okay, in the morning I've got coffee. And when I thought that, I went, oh. In the morning I've got coffee. What about in the morning I've got Jesus or God? And that can be vague, and you can say, well, okay, Matt, we're talking about blood, we're talking about death, we're talking about no coffee. This is a terrible Sunday. Drinking coffee is not a sin. Relying on coffee to get me through a sermon? (laughs) Problem. Problem. And it came about because of something completely different that as I was processing it through the week, I realized that, that the Spirit was working in me to get me to this morning where I even made the coffee. And as I was making the coffee, it was like the Lord was like, you really need this? Like, I just felt that moment. And so I poured it out. And as I poured it out, I thought, well, I could just take a sip. And then I was like, nope. Not because coffee is sinful, but because there's a crizzling effect when I begin to rely on it instead of relying on the Lord. I'll probably go back to drinking coffee, but today I felt convicted. I'll probably figure out what's some balance I could put on it instead of one day having a cup of espresso and the next day having four because I have a paper to write or something. I, yeah, I drink a lot of coffee, and I don't want to admit that. If you would have asked me last week, Matt, do you drink too much coffee? I would have said, no, I just have like one a day. And it's like, <laughs> and this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. 
And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses each year. And his son did when Aaron stepped out. And his son did. And eventually it broke. We know eventually the temple was built and then destroyed. We know there were seasons where the Israelites were incredibly wicked and not following after the Lord. But the closest the Israelites could be to being in right relationship with God was the Day of Atonement, where their sin was atoned for in the holy places, and then the goat, the sin was transferred to the goat and let out. Now, I want to I talk to you really practically about this, because these are like the, this is the pessimist. The chiseling effects of sin led to imperfect annual sacrifices. The, imp- the implications of this passage are that the best humans could do was not enough. But there's good in this. Because we see that sin can be transferred and atoned for even if it keeps chiseling. Because what do we see in this passage? We see that the sin of the Israelites is transferred onto that goat. And it's led out of the camp. And that sin is seen in God's eyes as no more for the people. And yes, they immediately start sinning again. And they live in sin. And there's chiseling because of that. But the point is, is that this passage shows us there's hope. This passage shows us that even if, even if there is darkness and sin everywhere, it's never going to get to this point as long as we follow sacrifices of the Lord. Eventually there is a way where that sin can be removed. The next thing we see is that even if sin prevents triumph, the people can rejoice in a relationship with the Lord. No, they're not singing, praise the Lord, sin is defeated forever. But they're God's people, and God is their God. And and that should fill us with such hope, because in the middle of this Leviticus story that's anticlimactic by the standards of what we know because of the cross, in the middle of this story, for an ancient people who had no idea how they would ever be right before God again, God is giving them the groundwork, laying it out. The kingdom of God's people began with no lasting solution for sin. But, but, the picture was not just this because the picture was relationship with God. And so the people, if they were living well and living holy, we talked about this last week through the priests, they could participate in the divine life. They could have relationship with God. And the Old Testament relationship with God is radically less than the New Testament relationship with God. But it was still an option for them if they would follow and obey his commands. Finally, God has promised, or at least hinted at, depending on how you read a few passages, from the very first curse in Genesis 3, God makes a promise to a serpent that a more complete solution is to come. In Leviticus, if we're reading Genesis through Deuteronomy for the first time, we've never read or heard anything about the Bible. When we get to Leviticus, we would be hoping right now, in this moment, we're going to see the final solution for sin. And we don't. We don't see it at all. Instead, what we see is, is a way to cover it and to cover it and to cover it and to cover it and to remove it and to remove it and remove it, but then it just keeps coming back. It keeps chiseling. It keeps coming back because sin on its own is something we cannot account for. And so at the end of this picture, we land here. But then we have the New Testament. Praise the Lord. We have the New Testament. Praise the Lord. And I want to tell you, um, I think Leviticus might be the hardest book to preach on, but then there's the book of Hebrews. 
Um, And the book of Hebrews is worse in what I've found because the book of Hebrews requires you to already know everything from Genesis through Deuteronomy and then apply it immediately as you read. Hebrews is like commentary on Genesis through Deuteronomy. And, And but what Hebrews does is it says, look at these Old Testament things and add Jesus. And in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, walk us through the picture of the Day of Atonement in the New Testament. And you might say, Matt, why didn't you just preach Hebrews? And the answer is because we're in a series on Leviticus. But as we close, I want to spend a minute in Hebrews because I want to tell you that if the first, the black images were, were the, the like glass, the glass half full, these are the gla- or glass half empty, these are glass half full. In the New Testament, the picture we have is nothing half full, half empty, half blah, blah, blah. It's full. Because you see, in Hebrews 10, 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that place that Aaron could only enter once a year and had to enter with, with solemnity and had to enter with special everything, we, can, we have confidence to just enter that place by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. The, the first thing we learned here is that sin can be transferred, or we learned already that sin can be transferred and atoned for, even if it keeps chrisling. Well, in the New Testament, the blood of Christ was perfect, securing eternal redemption. There is no more chrisling if you have been atoned for with Christ's blood. That's why I think, me, Matt, um, I'm saying, and I think, and it may not be completely right, I'm still working on it, but I, I think it far enough to say it, I, me and Pastor Joseph had a nerdy Greek talk about this, um, the word atonement, covering over, does not appear in the New Testament in, in specific relation at all to anything, and specifically to Jesus' blood. Instead, what occurs there is more the idea of making peace. It's got a finality to it. It doesn't have a, well, the sin is covered for And that's because Jesus was not one goat. Jesus was two goats. You see, Jesus was the goat to get into the holy place where they cut his throat. And and, and they cut that goat's goat's throat. And they poured the blood so that the holy place could be entered. And so the wrath of God could be appeased. And the holiness of God could stand. And the sinfulness of man could stand before God. But he was also the goat on which all the sin was transferred. And he took both of those things. And so it's hard to talk about Jesus in the Day of Atonement because he's two and the Day of Atonement is one. Or he's one, but the day, I said, dang it. But but though you see it, you see it. I think you see it. And and even if sin prevents prevents triumph in the Old Testament, and even if the promise in the Old Testament is something will maybe come someday, Since we have a great priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That same imagery as the priest applied to each and every follower of Christ. The kingdom of God's people has now permanently dealt with sin. If you are a believer and you are out there today, there's not an issue where I may do something where I'll have to be atoned for again. That's the promise of what Christ did. Every sin was confessed on his head. And with his blood shed and the sin taken away, we're invited in to be a part of his kingdom. And and not in a flippant way, not as the lowest of the lows, but we're invited in as priests that can be in the full presence of God and are in the full presence of God through the Holy Spirit now and for eternity. Finally, let us hold fast 
the confession of our hope without wavering, for he, pro- he who promised is faithful. There was a promise in the Old Testament that everyone was waiting for, that God would make a way back to him. Those who call on Jesus are invited to live now in hope of eternity. In, in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, there's this promise that Jesus, and it's in the whole Bible, but there's this promise that Jesus is coming again. The story is not over in a moment. The story is one that we will look towards and and then when Jesus finally comes, we will be fully in his presence. The chiseling effects of sin that we still feel, even though we shouldn't have to feel because of Jesus, the ones that we still feel because there are consequences in this world, the ones that we still feel because we're unable to live up to the standard of holiness we have covered by Christ's blood, those will all be gone in a moment and we will live for eternity with God. Hebrews 10, this little unit we're in, ends with, and let us consider at the end how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That day is the day of his second coming. And what is so important here, remember, remember how somber the day of atonement was? Look at this, let's gather together. Let's spend time together talking about how to stir one another up to love and good works. Instead of we need to deprive ourselves and think of our sin, instead let's think of the good we can do as we participate in the divine life with Jesus. If the picture in the Old Testament of relationship with God was was that through his blood we could have the divine life, we could kind of participate in his presence, in the New Testament the picture is much more radical. In the New Testament, the picture that we are looking at is a picture where in the way that Jesus reflects the glory of God, we are invited to imitate Jesus and reflect that same glory to each other and to all that we meet in this life. If you are out there and you are not a believer, I want to challenge you. This is for you. If you're a believer and you're out there, I want to challenge you. This is for you. The message is the same for anyone, we are invited to be a part, and, and we on our own could never be this, but we are imp- invited to be a part of this for all eternity. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son. We thank you that you sent him, that he died on the cross, and not just died, that he rose again. We thank you that through his life, through his resurrection, we know that his promises are true because he promised when he talked about his death that he'd rise again. And we thank you that the promise that we saw in the Day of Atonement, that there could be a way to cover sin and could be a way to take away sin and could be a way to transfer sin, has been done perfectly through the sacrifice of your Son. He has stood in our place. And because of that great gift, we are invited to be in your presence now and forever. I pray we would live as those who follow you. I pray we would turn to you. I pray we would recognize that it is not by our works, but by your Son's blood. And Lord, we thank you that the curtain veil tore. We thank you that your presence is something we have full access through, through your, with your spirit and that we will be just fully in your presence for all eternity. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd love to invite you to stand one more time with us and let's respond to this word that we have received this morning, singing, Worthy. song we could ever sing 
we could ever be. Worthy of every breath we could ever be. Then we live for you. We live for you. Sing Jesus. And Jesus, the name above every other
May that be our prayer. Take that with you into your week, that you will be firmly planted in Christ, that you will not be shaken. It has been a delight to spend this time in worship with you this morning. Go now in faith to love and serve the Lord. Have a blessed, blessed week in him, and we will see you next Sunday.